Red Apple Media Podcast Network presents This is Protecting America. Now, here's Emmy-winning journalist Rita Cosby. And welcome to another edition of Protecting America. I'm Rita Cosby. Huge developments with the Russia and Ukraine war as Russians are protesting and fleeing the country to avoid being called to fight Putin's war. And joining us now to talk about all of this is retired Lieutenant Colonel Tony Schaefer. He is a former Trump National Security Advisor and also the president of the London Center for Policy Research. Colonel Schaefer, great to have you here. Rita, always a pleasure to join you and thank you for having me. And I appreciate the time to talk about and try to make sense of all of this wildness going on around us. So thanks for having me. You know, it is wild, and it's amazing to see where things are headed in Russia. First of all, your thoughts about the idea of annexation, of what Putin is doing. It is stunning. I think it's interesting from the perspective of what's at stake. And one of the things which I always try to give people context is, why is Putin doing this just to begin with? Well, it's all about resources. It's all about energy. And as much as I think we see folks in the West attempting to do things which are completely undermining the benefits of just citizens being able to travel and have vehicles available. Putin is trying to get control of some of the most lucrative potential oil fields that exist within that part of the world. That is to say that Luansk and all those other areas he's getting control of, it's all about the oil. That's what's going on. That's why he's fighting so hard to do this. So it's not just about occupying land and reinsinuating what Putin thinks should be the Soviet empire. I mean, that he has stated that clearly over and over. He was asked once what the greatest tragedy of the 20th century was, and he said the fall of the Soviet Union. So there's a clue. So it's not simply about trying to do what he set out to do, which is establish this new empire. It's about resources. And the last thing Putin wanted to accept is a competitor in the form of a very strong Ukraine as a nation and as a producer of oil, being essentially a competitor. So that's why this is so important to him. And that's why, Rita, he's willing to literally up the ante to actually now invoking drafts and other extreme measures, because it's not just about prestige. It's about real land and real resources below that land he wants control. How rich are the resources there in Ukraine, too? Because that's a fascinating point. Significant. I mean, we're talking, these surveys were done back about 2011, 12, and 13. And so if you note the timeline of conflict, everything has really started kicking off in 14, where they started doing the incursion. So if you actually look at the surveys and the amount of oil they've estimated to be there, matches the very time of Hunter Biden being given a lucrative job in an area that he's had no experience in. I would argue they were Ukrainians are trying to buy protection money or, or you know, basically using their money to buy protection from the Bidens. I think that's pretty clear at this point. And secondly, when you talk about the conflicts and competitions of Ukraine versus Russia, there's always been an underlying uh, theme of the Russians not wanting the Ukrainians to get too far away from being part of their empire. This goes back generations. So that all started kind of coming to a head when there was a pro-EU administration that Victoria Newland and the Obama folks really pushed for. 
And that really kicked off and was the spark that started this whole thing burning. But I can tell you, Rita, well, I don't know the numbers. The oil fields were significant enough that they would have been a near-peer competitor to Russia and the production of Russian oil within about 10 years. And I think that's why this all is so important to Putin at this point in time. What a sham referendum, too, as we saw. I mean, it was basically voting at at gunpoint. Talk about the process and what basically happened to create that moment. Yeah, look, this is Soviet-level behavior from a guy who came up to the Soviet Union. This is, you know, while they don't call themselves communist anymore, you know, they put a, a happy face and call it a republic. This is all about going in, gaining control of the local political apparatus, putting your people in charge, and then saying, let's vote. And see if we want to be part of Russia. That's all it is. And I would argue, and I got a question the other night from on another network, how do you think this is all going to play out? Everybody's been silent on these referendums and this annexation. I said, well, it's going to play out based on what each country will see benefit from. And I think the Chinese are going to be one of the first to say, oh, Russia liberated these poor people in these areas that needed to be rescued. I think the Chinese are going to come down their side. Other folks who are much more rational, understand the Soviet system and what he's doing will be very critical. And I think you're going to see a real kind of effort to get this back in front of the world via the U.N. I don't think the U.N. is the right place to talk about it, but, you know, that's the place they're going to go and talk about it. There'll be a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth, and nobody will do a thing about it. That's what I see kind of coming down the road on the annexation. Wait, so you're saying that they won't do anything. So what, they're just going to kind of turn a blind eye and allow it to take place? What does that mean? I think so. I don't think anybody has either the political wherewithal or the military capacity to actually do anything. Although with the pipeline issues with Nord Stream 1 and 2, obviously someone is pushing to widen the conflict. I don't know who that is yet. I haven't done enough analysis and gone through it. But it's very clear that the annexation is going to happen one way or another. It's just going to be, it is what it is. In the end, nobody's going to stand up and do much to walk it back. And nobody's going to do much to do anything that, because really, there's no way militarily to do it. And politically, nobody can do it either. So I think that's going to be a done deal. And what we have to watch for now, Rita, is that Putin's going to push off into the Black Sea. A lot of the other oil fields that they found are in the Black Sea. That's why you see them now trying to gain control of certain areas past Crimea going towards the coast of Ukraine. And so that's all going to play out. But in a larger context of the conflict, I think there's a real potential because of the Nord Stream issues in Europe that that's where the conflict may have a lot more challenges because clearly you and I both know Germany is not going to survive based on their own ignorance basically plugging their entire energy grid into the need for Russian energy. And that's going to be a real point of interest to the world and especially the Germans in about three months when the winter really hits. So talk about what is ahead as you're talking about the path, because you're right. And also, vis-a-vis, look what happened with President Biden's policies. I mean, he continues to vilify oil companies. And yet we're talking about this dire crisis for the world and us. Yeah, I could talk about this for an hour, but let me just summarize it. Look, I've got a degree in environmental studies. I know what the facts are. We do not have a global climate crisis. It's just all man-made. It's all artificial. The fact is this. Renewable energies and just the cost of creating those electric cars and everything, it's not ready for prime time. You would see the undermining as we've seen here. Part of the reason we see the American economy so jeopardized and in such a decline is because of this artificial attempt to move us to 
quote unquote, green energy. And we could talk about that in length some other time. But let's go back to Europe. Germany is shutting down its nuclear reactors, which by all accounts is the most efficient, least costly and actually safest form of energy. If you look at just the overall number of kilowatt hours produced versus what goes into it, and the, any loss of life has been minimal compared to what has been produced. So they've switched over and they're now dependent on natural gas and other energy coming from Russia. So that's the issue, is that this overall effort by the left, and I mean the global left, not just U.S., of trying to push people to forego fossil fuels, to give up nuclear energy, and depend on quote-unquote renewables, is creating the circumstance for Germany to be in the position it's in. And this is not just in Germany. England's going through it right now as well. And the honest answer is, Rita, we have adequate supplies of fossil fuel to power the entire globe for at least another 100 years, maybe even more, especially with the efficiency. And I'm sorry, I'm just going to say this. CO2 is not a pollutant. It's a gas. It's plant food. And the more they vilify a gas and try to convince people that somehow that we produce a fraction of a percent, which is in the atmosphere, the more they vilify that, the more they essentially cut the throat of the West and its ability to maintain both political and military dominance of the globe. And that's just the way it is. I hate to speak that bluntly, but that's what's going on. So Germany has volunteered to essentially, I think, be the first test case of this whole green energy movement and what it's going to result in, which is essentially their citizens being very badly damaged in their lifestyle, in their choices, because come winter this winter, Rita, they're going to be seeing massive amounts of chaos based on just prices of energy, and people are not going to be willing to go to basically live in a cold. So it's going to be a real point of contention come December, January, of the very near future. You know what's astounding is that people in Europe haven't already started balking. I mean, in a sense, yeah. and, and also and also European leaders. When are right. they going to start saying, well, wait a minute, here we are in this battle with Russia, and we'll get to Nord Stream 2 in a second, too. But yeah. here we are in this battle. Why are we not sort of pointing the fingers at this process that's put us in this dire consequence even before? Because the writing's clearly on the wall where it's headed. Right. Well, that's the thing. We have seen the political systems of the world so manipulated that science is no longer science. I mean, again, if we had the time, I could present to you a series of facts which would demonstrate to you that there's no climate crisis. But it doesn't stop the politicians in all these countries from constantly bemoaning the need for us, that we, the, the people, to get on board with, quote unquote, saving the planet. The planet doesn't need saving. What we need to do is actually examine the reality in which we live and not buy into this utopian vision that the left continues to push on others. That for whatever reason, the Europeans just have not woken up from understanding that it's all artificial. It's all about trying to remove fossil fuels and the freedom that comes to that. Frankly, if you've got a car, you can drive anywhere. You can go a long way. You get hooked to the power grid. Look what happened in California. They want you to convert over to electric cars. And, oh, by the way, there's no power. The grid's going to shut down. There's all these discrepancies that don't make any sense to the people who are rational. But the political elites have convinced people so well, so deeply, that the planet's in danger and you need to do your part. I just don't think people have recognized that they're being lied to yet. And that's what the danger is here. Yeah, there's a lot of danger. You know, I want to ask about Nord Stream 2, because we saw that it looks like, and people are accusing that it looks like there may be some sort of form of sabotage. That's, of course, the pipeline that goes from Russia to Europe. What do you make of that? And where do you think the blame could lie? So my team and I have always, we always start off with who benefits, 
the Latin term of cui, cui bono, bono. It's like who's going to benefit from sabotaging the pipeline? And obviously, there's strong opinions on both sides. Obviously, some folks believe the Russians sabotage it themselves, and this is just their attempting to expand and provoke a wider conflict. As they're saying that, uh, gee, Joe Biden and his threat to do something against Nord Stream 2, maybe we can take that seriously since he's on record threatening that pipeline. And the honest answer is you have to start looking after you get past that. Who has the technical capacity to actually go deep? I mean, the one place where they talk about the explosion happening was in 280 feet of water, more or less. So it was not easily accessible. So you got to look at who has the technology to do that. There's a handful of folks who could do that. And that includes both the United States and Russia and a few NATO countries. And then obviously what the outcome to be. And at this point, Rita, I don't know what Putin thinks. If Putin did it, he gives up a lot of leverage that we were just talking about regarding Germany. That pipeline goes into Germany and it goes from Germany to the other nations which need that energy. So I'm not sure if Putin, this would be the right time for Putin to shut it off. Plus, since he owns the pipeline, he can always shut it off anytime he wants. So I'm not sure what benefits him. On the other side of this, you know, why would the United States do this at the time when we're actually should be theoretically trying to discourage any expansion of the conflict? Because obviously the Russians will see if the United States did it or NATO did it as a provocation that could lead to a widening of the conflict. So at this point, because it's so murky, I can't make an assessment of who I think really did it because there's up and downsides to both sides. So I think we have to watch over the next 72 hours or so to see who really steps up and tries to leverage and take advantage of the destruction or the damage of that pipeline. It's not really clear at this point, but clearly someone saw benefit in damaging that pipe. And I think whoever did do that is going to try to leverage the situation to their benefit. And again, I think it'll be apparent within you know a very short time of who that person or entity is that thinks they can gain advantage from having done it. And of course, as you being a former national security advisor to then President Trump, it's interesting because Nord Stream was something, of course, that Biden kind of gave at least a little bit of a green light to. Trump didn't right. want it. Explain the sort of the significance of why it was good and bad. Well, this is the thing. It's like, you know, despite the left's protestations, President Trump was harder on the Russians than than Obama or any other president regarding holding true to sanctions and trying to contain them. And I think Trump was very clear on this. One of the things that's notable, although this has not been confirmed, I'll just say it. Apparently, at one point when Putin was meeting with President Trump, President Trump rightly said, you know, look, if you do something that I think is too outlandish, those golden domes in the Kremlin, they may not exist. And the beauty of it was Putin didn't know if he was bluffing or telling the truth. And I think you have to do that. You have to have credibility. And that's my next point. There's no credibility in the Biden White House. Nobody believes Biden is a credible leader. And as you know, we've talked about this both on and off air. I'm friends and mentors with a lot of the old Reagan folks. Bud McFarland, God rest his soul, was a friend and mentor. The key to deterrence, to deterring an enemy from doing something you don't want, is a credible deterrent. That is to say that adversary has to believe in their mind. The enemy will never do what you think they should do based on what you think they should do. It's always based on their own perception. And Rita, to have a deterrent, you have to be able to deter someone by how they see the world, how Putin sees the world. Biden hasn't done that. He threatened before the invasion. Putin wasn't deterred. I would argue right now it's even less because Biden has failed to do anything of any significance to follow through on any threat. And plus, just by the visible signs of his dementia, nobody takes him serious at this point. And I think this is the maximum time of danger because adversaries 
will think right or wrong that now's the time to challenge the United States. And that's what we have to be really vigilant of at this point. I want to ask you about what's happening in Russia, too, by the way, because it's interesting because at this time, obviously, Putin's being extremely aggressive with Ukraine. He's also looking at recruiting some, what, 300,000 people uh, trying to call them up, you know, to fight the war. There have been some protests within Russia. How do you read these protests? And how do you read? I mean, there are stories also, Tony, where we're hearing of wives breaking their husband's legs or wanting to break their husband's legs. So then they can't get called up, you know, by Putin's war to go to Ukraine. Do you see, is this enough of a groundswell within Russia between the protests and some of the people fleeing in a massive amount to neighboring countries just so they don't get called up to Putin's war? Now, I refer back to the discussion we opened with regarding Putin. You can take the Soviet out of the man, but you can't take the man out of the Soviet, so to speak. He's still a Soviet at heart. And I think what we're going to see is very much these tactics that they use during the Soviet Union to suppress any internal dissent. The media will kowtow to him. You might recall back in the old days before the new Cold War, if you want to call it that, RT, Russia Today, had a big system network in the United States all controlled by Putin, by the state. So I don't see any of that being effective in countering Putin. The only people who can counter Putin at this point, Rita, are the oligarchs. The oligarchs need to be the target of any effort to affect Putin. The oligarchs are the ones who help fund him. They protect him. They see benefit because they directly benefit from anything he does. They are the chosen ones And he gives them political top cover and they get money and they give money back to him for that. So as much as I feel for the people of Russia, the Russian Republic, I believe their protest to be very sincere. It's hopeless until the oligarchs decide they're going to side with the people. And I just don't see that at this point in time. Are we cracking down enough on the oligarchs? Well, that's an excellent question. And I would say no. I think the Biden administration has been bought off. I think they make a good show of it. But I would present to you the evidence of the ruble being at an all-time high regarding value. The commerce seems to be going on just fine from before. So I just don't believe that anything the Biden administration has contemplated or invoked has done anything to really deter anybody. So, again, you need to really get to those oligarchs to make convince them at a very personal level that their continued support for Putin will lead to their ruin. I just don't think that that message has been sent. And if it's been sent, it wasn't effectively delivered. Yeah, they're continuing to live their lives, although some of them end up falling out of windows out of hospitals, it seems. There seems to be a pattern. Yeah, those are the ones who disagree with Putin. So, yeah, they tend to have a very short lifespan once they go against Putin. So, yeah. Wow. It looks like this war, sadly, is going to be going on for some time. Don't you agree? I do. And I think it's going to end up without outside. If there's no outside intervention, that is to say that it continues on its current course with just Russia and Ukraine, no NATO support. I would argue that all the money we're throwing in to support Ukraine is going to be wasted. I don't think it's going to have any effect. All things being equal, no outside support to go and support the Ukrainians directly through military action. I think what we're going to see within the next year, by this time next year, is a full partition of Ukraine. That is to say, you're going to see the annexation, which is already, you know, it's already there. They're doing the annexation, whether you like it or not. That's going to happen. And then the issues relating to the larger Ukraine will be cut off because I think they're going to secure those ports along the Black Sea. And you're going to see a rump state exist where Ukraine used to exist. 
And again, I hate to be a wet blanket on the, the I look, I feel terrible for the Ukrainian people. I think they're caught in the middle. But again, unless there's some military interdiction by someone on the outside to support the Ukrainians, Putin's going to do the call up. He's going to expand their effort to secure those areas. And I think it's going to be a very difficult, if not impossible, for the Ukrainians to fight off this 300,000 man increase in the war by the Russians without any Western support. I mean, like military, like putting troops, boots on the ground to help them out. Wow. So they desperately need help from outside. And it's been incredible. I will say, I hope you're wrong, obviously, uh, Lieutenant yeah, Colonel uh, Tony Schaefer. And I also have been so in awe of the incredible heroism of the Ukrainian people. And I yeah, hope they get the outside support. As being negative against the Ukrainian people. I think they've been done valiantly. Look, we trained them to do a lot of the stuff they're doing. I admire that. It's just that I look at numbers every day. I look at reports of what's going on and they're doing a valiant effort. But man, you know, I compare this to, and you know, read it from your father and his history, World War II. I always ask people to look at the Russia's invasion of Finland. Finland, this is very similar, where Russia went into Finland in 1939. Just, oh my, they were getting just terribly decimated. I mean, you're talking about 200 to 1 losses. And they just kept sending people in until the Finnish finally just had to give in because of numbers. I see it very similar. So anybody wants to kind of see what I'm drawing from as an analogy to the current war, look at Finland in 1939. And I think that's the playbook that the Russians are going to follow. Yeah, what a powerful, powerful message. And again, we all hope that you're wrong because we want the best for the Ukrainian people and, and their courage and their efforts. Lieutenant Colonel Tony Schaefer, really great to have you here. Former Trump National Security Advisor, also president of the Great London Center for Policy Research. Thank you for all you do to keep our country safe and for protecting America. Sure. Thank you, Rita. And everybody, make sure you don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast. What a fascinating one it has been. And everybody, I'll be back soon with another great edition of Protecting America. And of course, you can catch me every weeknight, 10 p.m. to midnight on the legendary WABC Radio. This is Rita Cosby, and thanks for all you do to protect America.